My name is John Sylvester. I'm a reporter with the Age newspaper. Some people call me Sly of the Underworld. There are eight million crime stories in the naked city. And this is one of them. The rivalry between Australia's two great cities is friendly, often passionate and never-ending. Melbourne wins on sport. The AFL Grand Final and the Melbourne Cup hands down beats the City to Surf and the Golden Slipper by some distance. In fairness though, the gay and lesbian Mardi Gras just shades Moomba as a colourful spectacle. Although watching someone dressed as a chicken jumping into the Yarra as part of the Birdman rally should surely one day be an Olympic sport. Sydney has a better bridge, a better harbour and better oysters. Melbourne has better bars, better coffee and better laneways. But there is one area Sydney traditionally has Melbourne well and truly covered. Corruption. At its worst, there was not an area of power in that city not influenced by colourful people who should inhabit prison rather than the celebrity pages of various newspapers. Those who didn't live through it can't possibly conceive of it, rotten from the bottom to the top, from premiers to constables. The intriguing three-part ABC documentary Exposed, The Ghost Train Fire, is a detailed analysis of the 1979 Sydney Lunar Park fire that killed six children and a young father. A fire started in the ghost train at approximately 10.10pm, Saturday the 9th of June. More than 30 people were riding the train when attendants saw black smoke pouring from entries and exits of the building. Seconds later, empty carriages emerged in flames. Exposed goes into the sort of forensic detail that should have been required by police. Instead, within hours, they wrongly concluded the fire was due to an electrical fault and then deliberately ignored or concealed evidence that didn't fit their theory. Although an electrical fault is believed to have triggered the blaze, police, fire and Department of Labor and Industry officials were on the site once again today, sifting through the ruins. With indecent haste, they bulldozed the site, destroying the crime scene and any clues that could point to the truth. Many questions surrounding the tragic fire still remain unanswered. We're now satisfied that the fire was as a result of an electrical fault within the building. As Exposed reveals, Photos of the ghost train ablaze show the lights and electric signs operating. How could it be an electrical fault if the lights were still working? By far the most dramatic claim of the day came from Dr Anthony Stokes, senior lecturer in electrical engineering at Sydney University. In his opinion, there has been no material evidence found yet that prompts him to conclude that electrical failure was responsible for starting the Lunar Park fire... It is inconceivable that senior New South Wales police botched this investigation so badly. The alternative is obvious. The fix was in, and whoever ordered the arson was on the protected list. The arrogance of the cover-up was it was so bad, and yet they were so confident no one would ever find the truth. The policeman put in charge of the Lunar Park investigation was Detective Inspector Doug Knight who was neither an arson nor homicide expert. The former officers claim Doug Knight, the detective who led the investigation into the fire, was corrupt. Doug Knight was a dodgy policeman, a dodgy detective, 
Police insiders say that Knight, along with two other corrupt senior officers on scene the morning after the fire, appear to have perverted the investigation. Knight was picked because he was a lieutenant for Bill Allen and they knew exactly what he would do. Follow orders, cover the fire up, stuff the victims, protect the corrupt network at all cost. That is the definition of corruption. Back then there was no one more protected than the detestable Abraham Gilbert Saffron, the man they called Mr Sin. Named in royal commissions and the South Australian Parliament as a Mr Big of the Australian underworld, Abraham Gilbert Saffron was arrested at his Vaucluse home last November. I wanted to call him a dirty, filthy cockroach, but the lawyers wouldn't let me because apparently it's defamatory to cockroaches. The allegations centre on this man, Jim Pine, now an assistant police commissioner. In his testimony yesterday, Jim Anderson said he was present on two occasions when Abe Saffron gave Mr Pine two parcels, each containing $5,000. Police corruption usually begins as turning a blind eye to so-called victimless crimes, supplying products such as gambling, vice or drugs to people who want to buy it. Mr Anderson, who managed several King's Cross restaurants and nightclubs for Mr Saffron in the 1970s, also claimed a payment of $3,000 was made to Detective Sergeant Brian Ballard. The worst Sydney detectives were gangsters with badges. He told the inquest that other police officers were handed money, including Licensing Sergeant Cameron, Keith Dunlop and Jim Maloney. Mr Anderson said the payments were made on a weekly basis and that he had paid millions of dollars to Mr Saffron, who in turn paid some of the money to police. And it took 40 years for the honest ones to regain control. Years later, the National Crime Authority reviewed the Lunar Park investigation. It found Lunar Park had been coveted by Saffron for over 20 years and the fire on the ghost train had been lit as a trigger to evict the incumbent tenants and gain control of the park lease for himself. It found insufficient evidence to charge, but did pinch him for tax evasion, finally sending aid to jail where he belonged. 68-year-old Abraham Gilbert Saffron was accused of tax evasion over a 12-year period to conceal income from nightclubs and bars he owned at King's Cross between 1969 and 1981. The court was told that Saffron allegedly operated a dual bookkeeping system over a 12-year period at his Sydney businesses. There were so-called white books detailing income declared to the taxation department and black books containing the real figures. Prosecutor Peter Healy told the court that noted beside these figures were the letters R and P, letters he alleged that stood for rent and police. It was just after 7am when the detectives attached to the National Crime Authority arrested Saffron at his Vaucluse home. The jury agonised for a day and a half over their verdict. Just after six o'clock, they returned to court, heads down, to declare Saffron guilty. His wife Doreen became hysterical and had to be led from the court. For 40 years, New South Wales Police couldn't do it. It took the NCA a few months. And I suspect now we're seeing the real value of the establishment of the NCA and... Uh... Interestingly, the head of the NCA, Justice Don Stewart, an ex-New South Wales copper who was straight as a die, always said he didn't believe Saffron was behind the Lunar Park fire, but he was behind plenty of others. Saffron built a vice empire on a triangular business model. It was very effective too. The three points were bribery, blackmail and arson. 
He organised sex, often with underage boys and girls, secretly photographing patrons to be used against them. The prime example was a prosecutor, a QC, who was seduced by a rent boy. When it came to the prosecution of Saffron, the prosecutor ran dead, frightened of the photos. So what happened to him? Was he drummed out? No way. He was promoted. He became a judge. Can you believe it? The prosecution said evidence will disclose corruption of New South Wales police on a massive scale throughout a 12-year period. He alleged the police officers were being paid by money skimmed off Saffron's business. Saffron paid bribes to police. 750 per club for local police and 5,000 a week for senior police. And was so brazen, he repeatedly visited the Bent Deputy Commissioner, Bill Allen, at headquarters. Everyone knew Allen was a crook. And yet he was promoted to the deputy's job precisely because he was one. When he finally came a cropper, he wasn't sacked. He was demoted, able to snivel out and retire with a sergeant's salary. He was later jailed for copping bribes, but back then he was given the golden parachute for fear he would roll over and tell the truth on his corrupt mates. There was a commissioner, Bill Lees, who actually tried to clean the joint up. But when the Premier, Neville Rand, promoted Allen over 16 more qualified senior officers, Lees retired in disgust. Bill Lees didn't need to be told that Allen was a crook, but everyone else knew why. There was a secret official document written by the director of the Australian Bureau of Criminal Intelligence warning both Bill Lees and his successor, Commissioner Cess Abbott, that Allen was a crook. This is from the document, dated May 14, 1982, to C.R. Abbott, Commissioner of Police, New South Wales. Sometime in August 1981, information relating to the alleged corruption in New South Wales Police Force was passed to me by more than one informant. Broadly speaking, the allegations were that Mr Bill Allen newly promoted Deputy Commissioner of Police, was collecting huge sums of money from illegal gambling sources in New South Wales and taking that money to Mr Crabtree, the then Police Minister for the New South Wales Government. It was alleged that each Wednesday between the hours of 12 and 1pm, Mr Allen would leave his office, be picked up by a motor car and taken to Mr Crabtree's office where the money transactions allegedly took place. The sums of money referred to were $100 per month for each SP bookmaker in the state, together with $5,000 a week from the numerous illegal casinos. I considered that if there was any truth in the allegations, organised crime had successfully infiltrated the New South Wales Police Force at a level which would have endangered the efforts of other Australian police forces in their endeavour to control organised crime in this country. After I considered this information, two photographers came to Sydney at my request for the purpose of ascertaining whether the fact Mr Allen did leave his office at the time alleged, whether in fact he was picked up by a motor car and whether in fact he went to Mr Crabtree's office. The resultant photographs show that Mr Allen did leave his office between the time stated and did board a motor car. His ultimate destination was not ascertained. Following the confirmation of at least part of the allegation to wit the verification of the fact that Mr Allen did leave the office at the time stated, 
I conferred with Sir Colin Woods of the Australian Federal Police, who informed me that he had some information relating to Mr Allen, which he was investigating, and that he had conferred with Mr Lees, the then Commissioner of New South Wales Police. There were further allegations. The original allegation also suggested that Mr Allen obtained free air travel to America, free accommodation, and that the traveller and accommodation had been paid for by people involved in illegal activities in the state of New South Wales. The allegations continued. It signed Fred Sylvester, Director of the Australian Bureau of Criminal Intelligence. That's my father. This information was available to senior police and the government before they appointed him Deputy Commissioner. What a rort. Back to Saffron. The third part of his business model, other than blackmail and bribery, was arson. Six Saffron properties went up in smoke between 1980 and 1982. At inquest, he was implicated in four, and surprise, surprise, the authorities failed to prosecute. Instead of trying to conceal his smouldering reputation, he used it to make even more money. One honest and tough Melbourne businessman bought a two-star hotel in Sydney for $2 million, unaware it was a Saffron property. Three days before settlement, Saffron reached out, saying the new price was $2.25 million. When the Melbourne man mentioned the ironclad contract, Saffron responded, What if there's a fire? What if one of your hotels burned down? Or more than one? People could be hurt, businesses closed, insurance premiums could go through the roof. It would be a tragedy. The Melbourne man paid the extra $225,000 in what amounted to protection money. Saffron had senior police premiers, federal politicians and judges on his payroll. He considered former Attorney-General and High Court Judge Lionel Murphy a special friend. Lionised by some, loathed by others, Murphy's far-reaching reforms as Attorney-General in the Whitlam government helped reshape Australia. But when some of his conversations were captured in an illegal police phone tap operation, Murphy was caught up in sensational corruption allegations that dogged him through the final years of his life. As an old man, Saffron tried to use his power to rewrite history. He started to donate dirty money to charity and sued anyone who called him Mr Sin. At the same time, court records and transcripts started to disappear. While you can buy some cops and some friends, you can't buy a reputation. You earn that. Abraham Gilbert Saffron died in 2006, a gangster, a parasite, a corrupter and a killer. The world is a better place with his passing. I was crossing the road the other day and a bloke on a bike went past and yelled out, what are you looking at, you bald, ugly chap? I think it was a rhetorical question. Compare and contrast that with more than 2,000 people who've left lovely reviews about the Naked City podcast. Do yourself a favour. Be nice. Send a review. And don't yell at pedestrians.
Just a small personal example of how the Sydney system worked. A group of New South Wales Criminal Intelligence Police, sick of the fix, started an illegal bugging campaign to gather information on protected crooks. One was drug boss Aussie Bob Trimboli. That was called Operation Lucerne. Trimboli was considered a likely target of a proposed Royal Commission. The tapes picked up chatty conversations with a New South Wales police officer who Trimboli called the Gardener. In multiple conversations to multiple sources, he asked if there would be a commission. Multiple sources told him there would be and he would be better off out of the country. Trimboli fled Australia for Las Vegas, then Europe, in 1981. Three weeks later, a Royal Commission was established under Justice Donald Stewart. On June 23, 1983, I published a story highlighting the questionable relationship between Trimboli and the gardener. It wasn't a big story in Melbourne, but it went nuts in Sydney. A government minister took to the House to say, I had a pathological hatred of New South Wales police. The commissioner, says Abbott, puffed his cheeks out saying it was outrageous. But in the interest of justice, he would order a high-level and exhaustive inquiry. On June 27, 1983, I was interviewed by two stern-looking New South Wales internal affairs detectives who flew all the way from Sydney in search of the truth. They wore dark suits and furrowed brows, so they must have been serious, as they walked into the Russell Street press room just after 2pm. They managed to ask a total of just seven related questions, four to the source of the story and three to the identity of the alleged corrupt leak. What I did tell them was Trimboli had been tipped off by a second source. Quote, This information plus the evidence about the gardener was given to a senior New South Wales policeman who destroyed this evidence. Unquote. They asked his name and I declined to give it, although it was obvious it was someone in criminal intelligence. They looked at each other, put their pens away, closed their government issue folders, packed up their portable typewriter, made their excuses and left. The typed record of interview went just over one page. Here was not one but two bombshells. A middle-ranking cop had buddied up to Australia's number one drug boss and a senior officer had covered it up. They could have checked files, seized diaries, looked for whistleblowers, identified witnesses at a bar used as a secret meeting point and run a comprehensive investigation. But what did they do? They closed the file in three days. On July 1, Commissioner Abbott released a statement that after receiving a report, they interviewed me for about 20 minutes on a Monday. He got the report on the Thursday. The matter was closed. In summary, no evidence of a substantive nature was produced which would prove such an allegation, he crowed. Abbott may have considered the matter closed, but Justice Stewart didn't. Less than two weeks later, I was in the witness box at a secret session in Sydney. I told Justice Stuart Trimboli had been illegally bugged and the gardener and others needed to answer some serious questions. Justice Stewart agreed and we're off to the races. The police who bugged the buggers gave evidence saying a senior police officer in criminal intelligence had played the gardener the tapes and shown him the transcripts, blowing the secret bugging operation. The gardener gave evidence to the commission on Monday, November 26, 1984. He entered as a high flyer. New South Wales Police cheekily had recommended him as the liaison officer for the Stuart Royal Commission. He left the witness box with his reputation in tatters. He retired on the Friday. He told Justice Stewart his relationship with Trimboli was perfectly professional 
and conducted with the knowledge of the then Assistant Commissioner. You guessed it, says Abbott. Funny, Abbott didn't mention this when he was bagging my story and ordering a three-day exhaustive inquiry. The gardener dug out his typewritten notes, all signed Sergeant First Class. The trouble was, at the time, he was a Sergeant Second Class. Stuart found he could offer no explanation as to why he would misrepresent his rank on the notes. I can. He faked them. No charges were ever laid against anyone for accepting bribes from Aussie Bob. Trimboli, Australia's most wanted fugitive, died of natural causes in Spain in 1987, a free man. It's unfair to suggest all coppers in New South Wales were crooks. Most were out there trying to do the right thing, but the central core of the crime department had been bent for years, and it would not allow anyone seen as honest to progress through the ranks. They were a threat. In normal police forces, the corrupt hide it. In New South Wales, the honest had to hide that. Way back in the 60s and 70s, there'd been crooked detectives such as Freddie Cray and Ray Gunner Kelly, who mentored the most notorious of them all, Roger Rogerson. Back in those days, Cray and Kelly were notorious leaks to the media, and so they were protected because they provided stories. If any of the traditional journalists had actually exposed Cray or Kelly, they would be finished. It ultimately took outsiders like the very brave Wendy Bacon and Marion Wilkinson and later the Sydney Morning Herald's Kate McClymer to do the hard yards. Rogerson was brave and charismatic, but even by New South Wales standards, enthusiastically, hopelessly corrupt. I think it's fair to say former police officer Roger Rogerson is an evil man. But there's much more to the Rogerson story. Publicly, he was a highly decorated star of the New South Wales Police Force, a man many viewed as a potential police commissioner. But that was all a lie. In reality, he was a bad cop, as crooked as can be. He was a natural, as he could turn the charm on and he could recruit dishonest police to do his bidding. He won the New South Wales Police prestigious Peter Mitchell Trophy and became the go-to investigator often assigned to difficult cases. His results were impressive. Well, they should be, because he would often just verbal or load up the suspects. In 1981, he shot and killed local criminal Warren Land Franchi in what Rogerson claimed was a case of self-defence. Others disagreed. This is Chippendale, a suburb of Sydney, and it was here on a Saturday afternoon in winter last year that Warren Land Franchi came to meet a senior policeman. He came around at a Dangar place with a policeman named Detective Sergeant Rogerson. He believed Rogerson was unarmed. Rogerson was not only armed with a pistol down the back of his trousers, but he had other police surrounding the area. In fact, he had one senior policeman behind a car just over there and armed with a shotgun. Rogerson and Land Franchi walked up the lane together. But when Land Franchi noticed that there was a policeman hiding with a shotgun, according to Rogerson, he panicked. He pulled out a small pistol He pointed it at Rogerson, who then pulled his own service pistol and fired twice, killing Lanfranchi. I first met Roger at the bottom bar of the City Court Hotel in Russell Street in the company of local armed robbery squad detectives. As a guest, he didn't have to put his hand in his pocket, which suited him because he was notoriously tight. We were both drinking cold beer and didn't warm to each other. I thought he was a crook and I clearly was unable to conceal my feelings. 
He later went on to bag me, which I couldn't care less. Ultimately, he was convicted of a murder and he's in jail, so stuff him. It's almost beyond comprehension, but Rogerson was heavily involved in the attempted murder of a colleague in McDrury. Hear that full story in an earlier episode of Naked City. Even though Rogerson was never convicted over Drury, it was the beginning of the end. Slowly, even for New South Wales, the corruption was too great, too overt and too scandalous. The tame police reporters either died or retired. A new generation of investigative ones took the place and no longer would they kowtow to people like Rogerson and Freddie Cray and the others. Eventually, a commissioner was selected by the name of John Avery. Avery was not from the rough and tumble of police. He was more bookish. The corrupt thought he'd be weak and last a couple of years and then they could bring their men back in. They underestimated him. He was the one who began the clean-up. Slowly, the corrupt networks were weeded out. And finally, the New South Wales police force became one that did its job. For those who were corrupted, it ended badly for many of them. A number of retired New South Wales police committed suicide. Over what? Greed. You know, as a copper, you can't actually go and buy a Porsche. You can't go to work in a Xenia suit. You might drink a better beer and go to a better Chinese restaurant. But in the end, you live your life in fear. Would you be exposed? The honest ones always slept well. The dishonest ones always waited for a knock at the door. You know what? Crime doesn't pay. Even for bent coppers. Naked City is brought to you by The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. Subscriptions power our newsroom. So to support independent journalism, consider subscribing to the Sydney Morning Herald or The Age. This episode was produced and edited by Anu the Axe Has Bolt. Archives by Nine. Tom McKendrick is head of audio. I'm John Sylvester. Thanks for listening.